God's word beginning in Luke 10 verse 17 says, The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to your name, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. C.S. Lewis, the famous Christian author of the Chronicles of Narnia, an apologist for the Christian faith, wrote an autobiography in which he entitled it, Surprised by Joy. By joy, Lewis did not mean merely a pleasure or a happy mood or experience. Rather, joy was a deep longing for something that utterly took you. It enraptured you and left you completely unaware of you because you were rather caught up in it. Well, Lewis, in his autobiography, walks through his Christian upbringing, how he then went away from that and became an atheist, and then how he was brought back to become a believer in Christ. As he wraps up, wraps up his story, he writes, But what in conclusion of joy? He says, It was valuable only as a pointer to something outer. While that other was in doubt, the pointer naturally loomed larger in my thoughts. In other words, when he had God in doubt, Seeking for joy was what was he always was fixated on. But then he goes on and says, When we're lost in the woods, the sight of a signpost is a great matter. He who first sees it cries, Look! The whole party gathers around and stares. But when they've found the road and are passing signposts every few miles, we shall not stop and stare. They will encourage us and will be grateful to the authority that set them up. But we will not stop and stare, or not much, on this road though the pillars are of silver and their lettering of gold. In other words, what Lewis is trying to say is, once he had found the signpost that brought him to the road that led to God, then all these joys of earth, they were great as you pass the signpost on the road. Oh yeah, joy. That's from the one I'm on the road to see. That's from God. But he stopped focusing on all the signposts or all the joys of this earth because he was focused on the joy giver. And since he was focused on the joy giver, all the things of earth took their proper perspective. So is your life one filled with joy? I can't always say that mine is. And I know it's very easy, at least for myself, let you answer for yourself, to get discouraged, even depressed, and look around. Life can seem unbearable at times. And is there anything to be joyful about? And yet this morning, Jesus shows us a new way in which we should look at joy. A new way that's not tied to our circumstances, it's not tied to our achievements, and it's nothing that's temporary. Rather, we see Jesus is going to give us a joy that lasts. We see that in verses 17 through 20, and then verses 21 through 22. 
There's joy if we know God's revelation. And then lastly, in verses 23 through 24, joy in their experience. If you have a bulletin, you can see all that on the back. But first, in verses 17 through 20, let's look at the joy that lasts. If you may remember, before this, Jesus sent out the 72 disciples, and they went out proclaiming the kingdom of God and healing the sick, and it looks like as well being able to cast out demons. And here they return, and they're rejoicing, because the demons even submitted to them in Jesus' name. Now, it doesn't seem like they're boasting, because they're very clear. They say, they submitted in your name. They're not talking about their strength, but what Jesus did through them. They're agents of his. And then in verse 18, Jesus says that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. You know, ultimately, Jesus defeats Satan. And thus, Paul will write of what Jesus did on the cross. If you looked at Colossians 2.15, you would see that it says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You know, on the cross, Jesus conquered sin, death, the devil, and all his demons. Thus, the devils and demons have no power over Jesus at all. But Paul said more than that. Not only did Jesus defeat them, he put them to open shame. You know, the picture is one of the military conquests of that time. A general would go out and he would conquer the various nations. And then all the way back to the capital city, what he would do is he would ride on his stallion up front. His soldiers would come in the middle. And then at the very end, they would make all the defeated kings come marching. Well, why? Because every town they wanted to show them they are no longer in control. They've been defeated. And that's the image Paul is using, that Jesus defeated and put to shame all of the devilish powers. They have to come at the end and everyone see they no longer have control. And this is given a foretaste here in Luke 10, because the disciples are given in Jesus' name, through what he's going to do, the power to tell demons to submit, and they do it. This is a foreshadowing of the cross and what Jesus would accomplish. Not only that, but Jesus tells in verse 19 how he gave them authority over scorpions and snakes. You know, this is symbolic of evil or Satan. And again, it's showing that since Jesus defeated Satan and all of his powers, defeated sin and all of its effects, then nothing will hurt them. If you've read through the book of Acts, you may have immediately thought of this when the Apostle Paul is on the island of Malta and he goes to pick up some sticks. And as he picks them up, a, a viper attaches to his hand. And all the people of the island think that Paul must have somehow gotten away with his crime and he's now being punished by the gods. But Paul doesn't have any reaction. He just shakes the snake off. And then they think Paul is a god. And Paul lets them, no, 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 I'm not a god. And yet Paul was not hurt because Jesus was protecting him. The serpent had no power over him. Now, this is really what was prophesied in Isaiah 11, where it talks about one who would come from Jesse, that's King David's father's lineage, and that says in Isaiah 11, verse 8, The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adders or the serpent's den. You know, Jesus is this child of Jesse's lineage. And his life, death, and resurrection showed, conquered sin, and showed this by the restoration of creation, where animals no longer do any harm. You know, one day, children will play like snakes, like puppies. You can imagine 
Christmas morning. They open the package and out comes the boa constrictor and everyone goes, oh, it's so cute. They'll be going, hey, remember last year we got grandma that green mamba? She loved it. Let's get her another one. Because once we have fully seen the effect of Jesus' work, no longer will sin and the effects of sin, evil, destruction, occur. This is really going back all the way to Genesis 3, where the seed of the serpent was going to be an enmity with the seed of the woman until the seed of the woman would ultimately crush the serpent. And all of this is coming to fruition in the ministry of Jesus and his disciples here. And so now, this is where we pull out the snakes, because they're not going to hurt us anymore. <laughs> well, no. But you probably have all at least been loosely aware of, heard of churches where they pull out the snakes. And they say, look, this is in the Bible. Was do we not do that because we don't believe the Bible? Is that why we're not pulling them out right now? Well, no, we've, this is fully true. It is 100% accurate. But we realize that Jesus' kingdom has not yet fully come. There's one thing you have to realize as you read through the Gospels. What did Jesus teach us to pray? Thy kingdom come. It is not yet all fully here. And yes, one day when it has fully come, then we can bring the snakes out. But it is not fully here, and God has graciously allowed it not to come yet. Well, why would we say it's graciously not come? Well, because there's people who still have not repented. There's people who God wants to come, and he beckons people to turn from their sin and come to him. So his kingdom has not come. So, yes, these things are true, but we need to realize that they are not yet all fully fulfilled. And there is a greater realization of these things during Jesus' ministry and that of the disciples so that people could know they're not just professing this with their lips, but we can see it with our eyes. Yet, even though the disciples got to experience this greater fullness of God's kingdom on earth, notice what Jesus tells them. Verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Well, that would be something to rejoice in. I just was able in Jesus' name to cast out a demon. It's pretty cool. I just got bit by a snake and nothing happened. That's pretty awesome. Yet notice what Jesus tells them to rejoice in. He says in verse 20, But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is a metaphor for eternal salvation. It's really a play on words because Satan was just said to be falling from heaven, but their names are secure in heaven. They'll never fall like he did. And this really here is in focusing on rejoicing, but we should also notice a subtle warning. You may be familiar with Matthew 7, where there, there are people who are able to do all kinds of mighty, powerful things for God. And yet one day, Jesus is going to tell them, I never knew you. So don't rejoice if through you, many great things have happened. Don't rejoice if you have great power in Jesus' name, if you don't actually know him. That's what matters, not doing great things for God, but being, being known by God. But here, the emphasis really is on rejoicing, and it's a present imperative, implying ongoing action. Not like, okay, when you're saved, you should rejoice. Okay, now you've got to get on. Every day, we should have the joy of our salvation, that we don't lose our first love, so to speak. Now, the word here for our name being written, the idea is a public document, a register, a census in which our names are securely there. It's the God 
cares for us, and he has written our names down in it. In a prior non-electronic age, people carried things where they wrote down people's names, and they had things called address books. And for some people, it was a delight if your name was in their list. I'm in their book. They have my name. They care about me. But better than any other human list, we get to be on God's book in heaven. Don Carson recounts of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. You may have heard of him. He's a very influential pastor in the mid to late 1900s. And yet, as with all of us, he got sick and eventually he was on his deathbed. He was dying of cancer. And one of his friends, former associates, asked him, how are you managing to bear up? You've been accustomed to preaching several times a week. You've begun important Christian enterprises. Your influence has extended through tapes and books to Christians on five continents. And now, you've been put on the shelf. You're reduced to sitting quietly, sometimes managing a little editing, not so much asking, therefore, how you're coping with the disease itself. Rather, how are you coping with the stress of being out of the swim of things? He had all this power, all this influence, and now he's stuck in his bed. How do you handle that? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones responded, Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What is it that brings you joy? It's so easy to fall into the trap that Lloyd-Jones seemed to avoid, and that is finding it in our power, finding it in our influence, finding it in our success. Yet, Lloyd-Jones realized the secret of contentment and joy was finding joy in being known by God. Now, really, no other joy is going to last. I remember very vividly ninth grade basketball tryouts and then the dreaded wait. They have to sit together and talk as coaches and go, who made which team? And you wait in agony as they haven't yet put up the list. They haven't put up the list. And then you see them go and put the piece of paper on the wall and everyone clamors up, where's my name? Did I make the team? You know, where do you want your name? Where is it that really matters? I want all of these people to see me. What is the joy you seek? You know, the great vacation is eventually going to end, and then you have to plan another one. The position of authority, authority that you wanted for so long and you got, sooner or later you're going to have to hand it to the next person in line. The successes and rewards of your children will eventually give way to them becoming adults and you dying. Making the team, winning the game, becoming the best will in the long run mean that you have to get off the team. There will be another game and someone else will be the best. So don't rejoice that you're the smartest, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Don't rejoice that you get asked for your recipes because your food is so good. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Don't rejoice that your Bible knowledge surpasses everyone else. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Don't rejoice that your children aren't like those undisciplined brats over there. My children sit and obey. Rejoice that your name's written in heaven. You know, we can find joy in all these subtle little things, but they'll never last. You know, the point is not that all those things are bad and you shouldn't care about those things, but that they won't last they shouldn't be your deepest source of joy and if they are you will eventually be robbed so instead invest your joy 
and the only thing that will last forever, that has an eternal return. That's God himself. And so we all had to fight the temptation to place all our joy in baskets that are going to be taken away. Through Jesus, you've been made a child of God with your name written in his book. So rejoice. And we've seen the disciples, they had a little bit of misplaced joy, and Jesus redirects them. But now, in verses 21 through 22, we see that Jesus has great joy. He has perfect joy. Verse 21, it says, In that same hour, he being Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. So here, Jesus is said to be full of joy. In other places, he's joyous, it says, but here is the only time it's said to be full of joy. And he gives thanks to his Father. And now he uses two terms, one that's intimate and one that's majestic. He goes, God is Father. One term that we're given, to know that God cares for us and hears us. And not only is he Father, but he's also Lord of heaven and earth. A term of intimacy and then a term of transcendency. The Apostle Paul used similar language. If you're familiar in Acts 17, he goes to the city of Athens and there... The Athenians want to make sure as they worship so many gods that maybe we might have forgotten one. So they make an altar and they put on its plaque to the unknown God because, you know, if we miss one, that God might be upset. So let's just make one generic one and whichever one we miss, that's his, hers, it's, whatever. We got it covered. And yet Paul comes to them and says in Acts 17, 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul is making known, there's not an unknown God, but God has made himself known. And he doesn't need us. And yet, he has condescended to us. And he allows us to call him Father. And so we have this intimacy with the transcendent being of the entire universe and jesus is praising god who he knows intimately and yet still the father is transcendent and he thanks god for two things first he says in verse 21 i thank you father lord of heaven and earth that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children so he's praising god that the father revealed who jesus is to these disciples but notice what he called them little children he's not mocking them but he's saying they're not the wise and astute of this age and we know that because he compares them with the wise and really he's attacking jewish thought that really the wise the sages they're the ones who know god who are saved and yet jesus declares that god's message is hidden from them and given to people who are like children you know people who have nothing to offer who realize i don't have wisdom of my own And yet God has sovereignly chosen to give his message to people who come like children. The Apostle Paul clearly describes this in 1 Corinthians 1. So if you can keep a place in Luke 10, if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I want to look at these verses. So we're in Luke 10, go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll look at verses 18 through 31, a little bit of a long section, but Paul so beautifully describes here what Jesus is saying. So 1 Corinthians 
chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning authority. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful, not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now God chose that his salvation would come in a way that we have to humble ourselves. Now this is the case because we have to believe a message that goes against everything that's in us. I'm saved by doing nothing. All I have to do is trust in God's Son and what He did. I don't want that. I want to be able to work for it so I can then compare mine to yours and see that mine's a little bit better than yours. My salvation has a little more gloss. I worked a little bit harder. Mine's a little bit better. And yet God says, no. What you must believe is that His Son came and died on a cross. Well, that's foolishness. That's a stumbling block. Well, yes. But that is God's message that he sent so that it would humble the proud. This humbling message is shown in 2 Kings 5. There you may remember the story of Naaman. He was the commander of the most mighty army of the greatest country in the world at that time. Except he had one major problem. He had become sick with the disease of leprosy. And he went and he was searching for all of the healers to make him better except he had to go and listen to his wife's slave who said, well, really what you need to do is go to Israel and there, prophet Elisha, they can heal you there. And so Naaman went and he wanted to go. But Elisha, he didn't even go see Naaman. Naaman was used to everyone fawning over him and wanting to see him. And Elisha just sent a servant. Elisha didn't care what your name was or who you are on earth. Those things don't matter. Rather, he tells his servant, to go tell Naaman, what you need to do is go into the Jordan River and bathe seven times and you'll be healed. Well, Naaman rages. This is foolish. What? We have better rivers in our country than the Jordan River. That's a dirty old river. Why would I do that? And seven times, what's the seventh time going to do? And he's angry and he's not going to do it until some of his men say, well, look, let's say that he'd said, go do this mighty thing. Would you have gone and done it? Well, yeah. Well, since he said they do the simple thing, why won't you at least try it? And so Naaman humbles himself. And he goes and he washes seven times in the Jordan River and he's cleansed. He's healed. But notice what Naaman had to do. He had to 
humble himself. He had to, the greatest military figure had to listen to a slave girl and then listen to the messenger of a prophet from a country they defeated. And then he had to go do this action that just seemed ridiculous. Well, why did God have Naaman do all this? Couldn't Elisha just said, Naaman, you're healed. You know, it's going to help our country now that the commander is on our side because we just healed him. Well, yes, but he was wanting to show that salvation comes not to those who are mighty, not to those who are wise, not to those who are rich, but to those who humble themselves. Now, we should notice that Paul doesn't say that it comes to the uneducated. That's not the point. It's not that those who can't think. It's those who are humble, who realize their own wisdom is not what they need, but they need the wisdom of God. They have to look out from themselves. You know, the arrogantly wise think, I have it all figured out. I know God. I can tell you all about Him. And so God calls those who think they are wise in and of themselves to humble themselves to God's message of the cross. As well, we should notice that Paul says, not many of you were, and then he says, wise or strong in those things. He didn't say not any. So there are some people who are very wise. There are some people who are very strong. There are some people who are very rich who have come to know Christ. One wealthy woman, the Countess of Huntington, said, I was saved by an M. She was one of the not many because it didn't say any. And yet you can be poor and very arrogant. You can be rich and very humble. But no matter what state, to know God, you have to humble yourself and that's really what Jesus is getting at back here in Luke chapter 10. He's saying his message, God's message, was revealed to those who are humble, who are like children, who are not wise in their own eyes. He didn't, God didn't reveal the message to the religious leaders of the day. They thought they already had God all figured out. Rather, he revealed himself to those who humbled themselves. And thus in verse 22, we see that Jesus praises his father for a second thing. And that's in verse 22. All things have been handed over to me by my father. And no one knows who the son is except the father. Or who the father is except the son. And anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. So Jesus thanks God for revealing his message to the people who are like children. And second, he thanks them that the father has handed all things over to him. God the father gave all authority all power to judge to God the Son. Thus Jesus will later begin his commission to his disciples by saying, all authority has been given to me. He has all authority on heaven and on earth. You see, Jesus is not just a kind Savior, but he's also the divine ruler of the universe. You're like the Father, we can know him intimately, but also like the Father, we must realize that he shouldn't be treated lightly. He's someone who is to be respected. You know, Jesus tells us he's our friend. He's not a friend like anyone else. I hope you don't have any friends who say, you really need to bow down and worship me. That's not the type of friends you want to have. I hope you don't have any other friends who say, I can reveal to you God the Father. Those are not the type of people who should be next to you. There's little institutions where we put them. You know, Jesus is our friend, yes, but he is the ruler of heaven and earth. He deserves our respect. In fact, he demands that. And notice as well that the Father 
since he gave him this authority, is showing their equality. There's really a back and forth. Knowledge of Jesus comes from God the Father, but Jesus reverses it and says, also, if you want to know the Father, it has to come from me. And here we really see a clear distinction between what it means for us to be the adopted children of God and Jesus being the Son of God. And this is really an important point to make because a lot of cults will take a truth like what is said about us being the children of God and then take it beyond what Scripture has said. Is Jesus the Son of God? Yes. Are we the sons of God by faith in Jesus? Yes. Do those mean the same thing? Not at all. We will never be equal in power, essence, and worth with Jesus. We will never be a part of the Trinity. We'll never be our own gods. And yet there are people who claim to be Christians who say those things. None of us can ever say, well, look, if you know me, then you know God. None of those things are true. Yes, we're adopted into God's family. But yes, there is a distinction between us and our elder brother, Jesus, for he was and will eternally be God. And yet Jesus also shows something that we need to realize, and that is to really know God, you have to know him. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. Oh, I'm sincere. I really believe this. Well, Jesus says sincerity is not the key ingredient in whether you know God. Jesus is the key ingredient into whether you know God. You know, many will claim, look, I've had this personal encounter with God and I, I really know him. And Jesus says, well, your personal encounter might be great if it comes through me. You know, Jesus makes clear that the word God is not just a generic title in which you can dump in whatever you think about God. Jesus says, God is known through me. And the Father reveals who I am. You have to come through Him. And that's why it's so important on the Mount of Transfiguration when the Father spoke. He said, this is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Because if you want to know God the Father, you have to know God the Son. And if you want to know God the Son, you have to know God the Father. And the Spirit reveals them to all of us. You know, this doesn't really matter how, quote-unquote, spiritual you are. If you don't know Jesus, it's not a spirituality that honors God. And Jesus here is revealing that he's equal with his Father. He's eternally with him. You know, really we're being shown a glimpse of the Trinity. The idea that God has eternally existed in three distinct persons. Now, you can read from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21, whatever the last verse is, maybe 18, I don't know, 22. But you'll never find the word Trinity. But we see pictures of it throughout Scripture. This amazing truth that there are three distinct beings in the Godhead, and yet one God who has existed for all eternity. That each one of them is unique. They each are equal in essence and power, and yet they are one God eternally. And so here we have this joy that Jesus is revealing this, and Jesus is rejoicing. Look, God, you've revealed these things to these people, and you've given me this authority. And so Jesus praises his father for this and lastly jesus turns to his disciples to let them know not only should they find joy in that god reveals this to them but they should really find joy for what god has let them experience this is our last section verses 23 and 24 it says in verse 23 then turning to the disciples he said privately blessed are the eyes that see 
what you see. He goes on, verse 24. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. You know, they have the great privilege of seeing and knowing Jesus, who's God's eternal Son, who's come in the flesh. No more important experience has ever been given. You know, the plagues in Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the fall of the Jericho Wall, David slaying Goliath, Elijah bringing someone back from the dead. All of that was amazing. But it's nothing to what these disciples are experiencing. You know, Peter, who is here hearing this, will later reflect on this. And if you flip over to 1 Peter chapter 1, we see his reflections in verses 10 through 12. So 1 Peter, after Hebrews, we'll look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. So the Apostle Paul, Peter, reading, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 1, it says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Or if you've ever been playing in your backyard and all of a sudden you start hearing all this noise, and so you go and you peek over the fence. What are they getting over there? What's going on? That looks great. Well, the angels, so to speak, are peeking over and looking down going, what is it that Jesus is doing? They long to look and see these things. And these disciples here in Luke chapter 10 are given this amazing privilege. And yet we may wonder, well, I mean, that's all great and good for these disciples, but what about me? I didn't get to see that. I didn't get to experience that. I'm, well, I'll believe it if I get to see it, but I've never seen it. Now, we take that idea to its logical conclusion will never believe anything about history. Because all of history is someone else giving us their recording, their witness statement of what they saw. We say, okay, well maybe in the past, but now we have video recording. So I can believe what I can see from the video. But almost all of us have surely seen a video and gone, oh, this is what happened. And then seen a different angle and realized, oh, actually something else happened. We just didn't see it. And so if we're going to believe anything, we have to say, well, look, we have to be willing to hear eyewitnesses and determine if they're credible or not. And so if we're going to be open to any history, we have to be open to the fact that Jesus did do these things and the disciples did experience in them and that they are legitimate witnesses. Not only that, though, but Jesus addresses this very situation. Well, I don't get to see that. You may remember John chapter 10, Jesus rose again and then he appears to his disciples, minus two, Judas who was no longer with him and minus Thomas who was not there. And Thomas, when they tell him, well, look, Jesus has risen again, he goes, well, I'm not going to believe that unless I can see it myself, unless I can put my fingers in the holes in his side and his hands, I'm not going to believe that. Then a few days later in John 20, beginning in verse 26, it says, Jesus' disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. 
Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put your, your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We are blessed because even though we have not seen, we believe the eyewitness accounts. Now, one of you ever heard of George Matheson? George Matheson was born in 1842 in Glasgow, Scotland. But as he grew, his eyesight began to get worse and worse. And Warren Wiersbe writes about this. You know, as he got worse, he was able with thicker and thicker glasses to finish his main education. But he wanted to go on. He wanted to get graduate degrees. And he was now fully blind. So to go on with his graduate degrees, his two sisters, who loved him very much, started learning foreign languages with him so that they could tutor him and help him. And he went on and he got two graduate degrees. And then later, he was given an honorary doctorate. And yet what George really wanted to do was to be a pastor. And at first, many of the denominations or groups that wanted, that oversaw this said, no, no, you can't be a blind pastor, that won't work. Until there was a group that allowed him, and he became a pastor and served for over 30 years. But then one day, as one of his sisters on her wedding day, was something was going on, George fell into a deep state of depression. He never revealed what it was, but in that crucible, he says within five minutes, he composed the words to the song, O love that will not let me go. The idea that my name's written in heaven, it's never going to let me go. And in the third stanza, he writes this, O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. That morn when we wake up and we see our name written in the book of heaven. That day in which Jesus' kingdom will have fully come. You know, George Matheson, though blind, looked to that great day. You know, this is a joy that's not focused on present circumstances. But it's a joy that's focused on Christ. And it's not by denying the pain or sorrow that's currently in your life. Rather, it's looking to the one that controls your pain or sorrow. If you're still in 1 Peter, look down at verses 8 and 9. Because there, Peter writes, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Though we don't see Him, like George Matheson, though he couldn't see anything, we can see the truth. So is your life one filled with joy? You know, at the beginning of the service, we listen to a quote by Jim Elliott. We've heard of C.S. Lewis, George Matheson, Martin Lord Jones, and we could open up. And people in this room could share about their joy in the midst of trials. You know, a joy that is saying, yes, circumstances in life can be rough. They can be really hard. But there's something much better. Knowing and being known by God. Joy that no circumstance can ever take away. A joy that no achievement on earth will ever be greater than. And a joy that isn't temporary, but lasts. You know, to come to God only to be saved from hell is like to go to Alps merely to escape the heat. Well, yeah, that's part of it. 
but you have glory and beauty before you. Enjoy all that is there. Don't just come, oh yeah, I didn't want to go to hell, so I trusted Jesus. Realize the joy there is in knowing Him. You know, in His presence is fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Oh Lord, may we have that joy, the joy that is inexpressible. Lord, we know, each one of us knows that there are deep, hard times that we walk through. And yet in those dark times, we can look up and see your fatherly hand. We can rejoice that our name is still written in your book. Lord, may we today be renewed in the joy of you that we might have the strength that comes to eagles, that we might run and not grow weary. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.